Thank you. Thank you for coming. I'm surprised. <laughs> Why? Um, I, I would like to start my story um, by telling you a little bit about my mom. Uh, <clears throat> I think we all have soft spots for our moms. My mom was um, eight years old when her mother passed away. She'd seen my granny had long, long hair down to here. She'd seen her dad take her mom by the hair, lock that hair in a kist, and then beat her mother. Her mom eventually left, left them with their father and went to live. I can't remember if it was with the minister of their church or the doctor. When she passed away, my mom had a nervous breakdown, stayed with the pastor or, or, or that doctor. And I think in that eight-year-old girl... She knew she was next. So my mom lived a life of, my, my grandfather, she said, was a lovely man sober, a dreadful man as a drunk. So she would take the beatings. She had a little sister who was two years old who had asthma. And in this man's drunken state, he would put the pillow over this child's face. My mother would take that child and, and they would hide in the cemetery. Because this man would drink with a gardener, and he'd send the gardener out to go and find them. And my mom knew that he wouldn't come into the cemetery. So many nights they spent in the cemetery. Eventually he got through all their money and gambling, drinking, and they lived in a car in Kimberley because he was going to find his next source of wealth, and he drank methylated spirits, and eventually was no more. My mom got married um, to a man who eventually divorced her because she couldn't have children. And then she met my dad, and my dad really loved her. It's the first time she said she ever felt that she was loved because she was only 10 months older than her brother. So she said, how could her mother love her? Having another baby 10 months after you've... You know, you've got a 10 months old and you're having a newborn. So she, my dad was good to her. He said she didn't have to work anymore. She had four of us. She prayed to God and asked for a child. She had my brother at age 35, and then they just didn't stop. So there were four of us, three boys and myself. And um, we stayed on a, my dad worked overtime, he worked weekends, he did whatever he could to, to, to just give my mom the life that he wanted her to have. We stayed in a house um, on the factory premises. My dad was an electrician, he worked in the factory, and we stayed on the property. And they brought my dad home one day, and he'd, he'd cut his finger over here. And they called the, they put mercurochrome on, called the doctor, doctor came. And my dad also used to breed canaries for extra income. So we had these big aviaries because this, you know, it was a factory premises. The factory was there. Our house was there. It was a massive property. So he used to breed canaries and sell them for extra income. And they brought my dad in and they said to my mom, just don't let him sleep. So, my, so he asked my mom to go feed the canaries. My mom asked my, myself. I was five. My brother was two. To, to sit on the bed and talk to my dad. And we did. But then my dad stopped talking back. So I went to fetch my mom and I said, my dad's not, he's sleeping, he's not talking to us. And my mom ran into that room. And she, 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 she stood over my dad like that. She jumped on that bed and she was kneeling over him like that and she gripped his shoulders and she smashed him into the pillow. And she said, oh, God, no, no, but he died. You know, so when I think of my mom, um, she had a life that was hard from birth to death. She, um, she was without any money. She had no job. We moved in with my grandparents. They were Five of us in the bedroom, if she had to go to the loo, I mean, she generally stood and we squealed because to get over us to the door, open the door, get to the loo. She eventually got a job 
we found a little place eventually that she could afford and I shared a room with my mom all her life. But my mom used to say to me she wished she had the courage to jump in front of that train that she caught every day. But she couldn't. She'd been put in an orphanage. She'd watched her brother stand next to his sheets that he'd wet. So they'd make him stand there, um, give him bread and water. And he'd stand there the whole day while his sheets dried. So she rather went back to her father that was so abusive and watch her brother go through that. And my mom couldn't bear the thought that we might go to an orphanage. So life was hard. She, but she got up every day. You know, and I never liked my mom. My mom shouted. She, she was very critical. She, she, she wasn't nice. As a child, I remember not liking her. But I have been so grateful to that example. You know, it's easy to be a hero and take a bullet in a minute, but to get up every day and do what you don't want to do to provide for your children has taught me to persevere. It taught me to, to keep going. Thanks. It, it's taught me so much that I've learned to value. And, and obviously, as you get older, you also learn to, you know, to look at a person with the same grace that you would do a stranger. And, um, and not just as, as your, your mom. So that was our, our childhood. Um, eventually my mom took um, one of my brother's teachers, who was a bachelor. He asked if he could come and have meals, dinner at our house. And he paid my mom 40 rand a month. That 40 rand a month kept food on the table. I used to run around the neighborhood collecting cool drink bottles because you got a deposit when you handed those in. Um, and that kind of was how we, we grew up. My mom had this sense that this man was abusing my brothers. She um, spoke to our minister, her doctors, her brothers, and they told her her mind was sick. There was something wrong with her because this man, this man was an absolute gentleman. But there was something in my mom and she knew. So she got, she got really ill. She had major surgeries. Um, I tried my best to cook breakfast and lunches. I was only 10 suppers for my brothers. But it gave this man more access to our home while my mom was in hospital. She had two nervous breakdowns. It, it made her ill. My brother, when he was much older, of course the oldest one was being spoiled rotten by this, this, this man, wouldn't admit. My younger brother admitted to it when he was an adult. Um, the thought of what my mom had allowed in her own home, but nobody would talk about it back then. It eventually put her in a wheelchair. She, she just, it just impacted her health so much. So I want to just show you. So that, that was my mom. This was my grandfather. That was my mom. My grandfather was amazing. So you can see he made a beautiful gravestone for his wife, but that was... That was big. You know, this young girl. That was my dad. You know, so, so my mom was left at 45 with four kids under the age of two. No money? Nothing. This was us. Not long before my, my dad died. These were the two brothers that were these. This brother of mine was not much older as you can see. At 16 he tried to commit suicide and they told him my mom that he wanted to die. This young boy was gentle, he did not want to live. But I'm sure some of that abuse had an impact on his life. He died at 34. Um, he had a heart attack at 34. 
much like my dad. My dad was 46 when he died. So when I got to matric, they, um, one of the teachers had organized a scholarship for me to go and study, but my mom didn't want me to go and study. So, and the doctors had said her health had really deteriorated. We must move. So we moved to Zululand. She found me employment, um, and she got a little job in, a, in those old video. It wasn't videos. It was the old projectors with those big screens that you had to... You know, the reels that you had to lug around. <laughs> Some of you, I don't know, I think most of you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and, and, of course, um, we lived there, and that's where I met my husband, George. And I think the thing that attracted me first to him was that he made people laugh. I, I loved that. Yeah. And, and we got married we got asked, we were both sort of in banking and that background, we got asked to go and set up a, um, a you know, like a finance house in, down the south coast, so we, we, off we went. And, and life was good. Um, he, we only had one car, so he, he had to come home. I then fell pregnant with my son, and he never came home again. He would come home when he was rolling drunk, could barely walk. Um, I was alone. I spent most of my time alone. I went back to work. The pattern just continued. We went from there to, we lived in Scottborough. From Scottborough, we moved to Port Elizabeth. It was fine for a while, but soon that pattern continued. So we would go out to, you know, his salary wasn't great. But his expense, you know, his allowance for entertainment was more than double his salary. So, the, so because he was good at what he did, he, he brought in a lot of business, but he did a lot of drinking while he was bringing in the business. We stayed in PE, same thing. We'd, in fact, in Port Elizabeth, so we'd moved from Mpengeni to Scottsboro to Port Elizabeth, but in Port Elizabeth was the first time I realized that not everybody lived like we did. In those smaller towns, his whole circle, his circle of friends, he was 15 years older than me, his circle of friends all behaved like that. And in PE, I got to see not everybody behaved like that. So we would, we would go to corporate events, bras, it didn't matter what we went to, he'd leave me at the front door. And I was like the chauffeur just, just to get him, get him home. Um, in Port Elizabeth, my mom was really not well, so she came to stay with us. Um, and I phoned the church and asked if someone could pick her up, at least for a ladies' day or, you know, just for, for some interaction. Otherwise, she'd be on her own. And she got the, because you can imagine, husband drinking, two little kids, mother who had an abusive father, the dynamic in the home. Not so great. So we, she asked the minister to come to her house, and he did. And I don't know what he asked me, but I remember just bursting into tears. So he said we needed to come and see him, which we, we, we went. And, and he sort of, you know, I sort of said to him, I, I feel so alone. I'm so, almost feel dead inside. Um, you know, from little, I'd, I'd learned to be responsible for my brothers. I'd been my mom's sort of, just that emotional connection. I was only six. Um, and, then, and then George. And he said to me, you know what, you, you, you're not entitled to anything in life. There's no, no dreams. This is it. You must suck it up, deal with it. But he spoke to George equally harshly, which nobody had done, because everybody I'd asked <clears throat> had said not a chance, because he was not approachable on that topic. So, you know, that was a start. We moved from Port Elizabeth to East London, from East London back to Mpengeni. So we'd come this full circle in um, one of those, I call them pit stops. One of those pit stops, one of the pastors had said to me, get divorced and run, run like the wind. But I remember sharing a room with my mom, and I was so angry with her that I didn't have a dad. 
So I couldn't. I just couldn't choose that for my children. And George wouldn't stop drinking. And you cannot make people do what they don't want to do. So we got back to Mpangeni. By now my mom was in a wheelchair. She needed to be catheterized four times in the day. At night she needed enemas. She needed to be bathed. Finance was an issue. Um, And I just remember going to the bathroom and saying, God, could you make this stop? I can't do it anymore. So a little while after that, George actually came home at like normal hour and he told me what he'd done and even for him it was out of character for him. But I remember having to turn away because I couldn't stop smiling. I didn't understand it, but I remember I couldn't look at him because he'd see me smiling. And I, but I knew we'd come to a crossroads. We'd either go right or left, but we were not going to continue on this road. So I said to him, he had to do something about his drinking, and he said he, said he would, and three days went by, and he, he still hadn't done anything, and I said, you still, you... you you said you're going to. You haven't done anything. You need to go to AA. He got down on his knees and he said, God, help me. He got up. He never drank again. He went to an AA meeting. And you know, all that time, all that time I tried. I tried every trick in the book. I tried not to, to complain. I, I, I never shouted because my mom had always shouted. I'd never got angry. I tried to keep peace in the home. I, I tried everything. I'd even got a, a cockatoo from a friend of ours who'd been really cruel to this bird. So this bird had not a feather on it when I got it. It was so tormented. But it loved me, that bird. It grew all its feathers. It used to turn on its back and I'd tickle its tummy. It just loved me. But it hated men. And I don't know how a bird knew the difference. He would, we would have, we, my husband, we entertained a lot. That bird never, it slept in a cage, but it never lived in its cage. It would climb down from there and, cr- and walk along the floor and go under the table and bite them on their toes. It would fly at your feet first. So I used to position that bird next to his, where his booze was and watch him at, my source of entertainment. Watch him negotiate with this bird to get that drink. So I, tr- I tried many things to, to lure him away from that bottle. I went to church one Sunday and, and there was the bird. The toilet door was opposite the stairs. The bird was on the third step going. <laughs> George had spent the entire morning in the bathroom because every time he tried to come out, that bird was going to gun for him. So, I mean, there were some funny moments. But when we lived in Mpangini, um, the consequence of his actions was we lost everything. We had no home. A friend of mine said they would store our stuff. We had no money to pay rent. We had nowhere to go. I remember standing on that driveway with my mom in her wheelchair, my two little kids. And I thought then I would never again get attached to brick and mortar. It was brick and mortar. It was my home, but it was just brick and mortar. So somebody offered um, us the opportunity of marketing their product. But it was a very, it was commission only, slow income trail. So um, we found a storeroom. Here was this man, this new Christian we found a storeroom. It was just a room, no, nothing on the floor. There was a toilet outside and a tap. And my brother said I could come and stay with him with the kids, but I needed to put my mom in a home, and I couldn't. So I found her a little bed so she was in a wheelchair. She said, I can do this myself. So I put her in a little flat in Toti. I convinced my brother he was reasonably, he was very wealthy. I said, just pay her rent. 
And my mom would go to the toilet in, in the night and then fall and lie there till six o'clock in the morning and phone me and say she couldn't get up. So um, I had no money to help her. I had nowhere to, to stay. So I um, George stayed in this room. He had a table, a bed, a microwave, a kettle, and a Bible. And he stayed there by himself as an as a alcoholic, new Christian. He'd gone to the AA and they'd said to him he needed to ask forgiveness. He came to me like a, like a little boy and said, I'm sorry, I can't change the past. But I'm sorry. And he'd said sorry to me so many times it meant nothing. But in that moment, I was so filled with rage. If I could have, I would have hit him with a frying pan. I wanted him to suffer. There was nothing in me that could just forgive this man. I wanted to hit him and hit him and hit him. But I didn't. But that rage had come alive. This, this from being, feeling no emotion to this intense rage. So I went to stay with my brother. He stayed there. He had no friends. His friends were pub friends. They called him a Jesus freak. He thought it was the biggest compliment anyone could pay. If you had two years and five minutes, you were going to hear about Jesus. He was incredible like that. So many young, young people came to know the Lord through that man. So I was in Durban. He was over there. I was trying to work, earn money, help my mom. I borrowed money. I found eventually, trained two ladies who would, it was just a little bed sit, but the body corporate, I asked them, please, could I not find someone to stay with her? And they said yes. So I trained two people to look after, and they sort of worked a week on, week off. She needed an incredible amount of medication. My brothers were, well, the middle one had, had um, they didn't have extra money. The younger one was in the UK, and the older one was, I don't know, they just weren't there. So I shouldered the full financial burden of keeping my mom's little household going. When she died in 2000, her pension was 300 rand. Her medications, her bills came to five to, to 10,000 rand a month. But we had nothing. We slowly built this business, and, and George used to, he, liked, he preferred being on his own. But he used to come weekends, and we'd sit, you know, we'd, that's how we lived. My brother eventually built us a little granny flat, and um, we moved in there. And this rage was still, so if anybody sort of made fun of their behavior, I could feel this emotion come from my stomach and my face would go red. So I, asked, I had seen the one church advertising Alpha. So I moseyed off to Alpha and they were very gracious. It was like after the Holy Spirit weekend, there were only two sessions left, but they let me think I was come at the right time and they just started. You know, and they were just lovely, lovely people. They invited me on to another. George would come weekends and we started going to church. And then he, um, they sponsored us on, a, on an Emmaus walk. And George went and he came back and I could see he was different. And he said to me, you know, God loves me. He said, when I look in the mirror, I like myself now. I like who I am. But I think when he looked at me, God had forgiven him of his past. He was getting to like himself. But when he looked at me, he saw his past. There was a reminder, and that's the difficult thing in a marriage, because if you're not moving together, he would go 10 steps, I would go a few. You know, it was this kind of, kind of thing. So I went on an Emmaus walk too, and I cried that whole weekend. I just cried and cried. I used to think if I cried, I wouldn't get up the next day. 
to take responsibility, to generate income, to do all the things I had to do. So I didn't cry. But I cried that whole weekend. And you know, I came back and that emotion was gone. I could remember the incidents. I could remember all the things that we'd, we'd gone through and, and just, just how it treated me. But I had no emotion. It was gone. So we, we kind of had moved a step closer. We eventually got to a position where our income, I could just keep my head above water. And then the company that we were working for started to come end of the month when they had to pay. They'd give me a, a rough time and they, they wouldn't pay. And I heard later that somebody had gone to them and said, if they gave them that income, they would double the size of their business. So this guy, come Christmas, come Christmas, you wouldn't pay. And, and you've got, I didn't have savings. I needed that income to, to keep things going. And he would swear at me. He would call me all sorts of names and he would swear at me in front of people. But, they, but he just kept doing this. Until eventually he said, tough, that's it, take me to court. And we had no money to go to court. So we were back with nothing. Except now my mom's expenses were much higher. The kids were that bit older. So I, I was just so desperate. I begged him. No, it's fine. I can chuck it in there. <laughs> Thanks. I begged him to not do it, but he did it anyway. But there was a guy who lived in Jacini, and I, we owed him money. So George disappeared and I had to face this guy and I didn't know what I was going to tell him because he also had children, he had a family. But he came and as he walked in the door, he said to me, Colleen, it's okay, I haven't come about the money. He said, God has given me a message for you. He said, and I didn't want to give it to you over the phone. So he drove, also a family with, with not much resource. But he drove all the way from Jacini to Durban just to deliver a message to me. And he said to me, Colleen, look at your hands. You're hanging on for dear life. He said, you need to let this go. But I just come out of that place. He said, open your hands, Colleen. God has got something for you. But he won't give it to you until you learn to open your hand. And he gave me that scripture from Jeremiah. And I swore then and then I would never again, because someone wrote my paycheck, let them treat me like that. Not again. So we walked away. George managed to get a job. It wasn't a, a great salary. But for, for seven days, every day, somehow, I was, I was then working on Alpha. That scripture came up, that scripture in Jeremiah, I have a plan for you, plan to prosper you, not to hurt you. So I started my own business. I had to work four jobs. I would go to bed at one, wake up at four in the morning. I would work into areas of to do to into areas nobody else would go into. And I started and I called my business Jeremiah Brokers. George got retrenched twice in that interim. His self-esteem was, was nothing. We were then staying with my brother. My brother then decided he was moving to Cape Town. And he put up the money and we bought a house in, he bought a house in Clue for us. Um, and used to go back and forth helping my mom, doing whatever I could. And, and so that was our new kind of life. And I remember sitting in church and this vision of marriage, of almost like a function-driven marriage, you know, where the men are strong and the woman stand next to them. And I, rem I, I felt I became disgruntled. Because I never had that. And I didn't know how to be that gracious wife. I used to think of that song, He ain't heavy, my brother. 
And I think, how do you as a wife, when you have to carry a burden, do it graciously? I was, I still was, I don't think I'd truly forgiven him. So I realized I'd lost respect for him. And I didn't know how to get it back. So I'd said, I'd, I'd just, just in my mind, and you know, as you watch and you see these other couples and they're so together and they're so on the same page, I realized I'd become a disgruntled wife. And I didn't want to be that. So I would, I just would sit with the Lord and I'd think, you know, for a family to have a meal, one chicken puts its head on the block. You know, the whole family eat the chicken. I can do that. I could put my head on the block. I need to lay my life down. And maybe we'd never have a great marriage, but perhaps we could have a good one. So I would pray these things. I sat with a piece of paper and I wrote on the, I wrote what I thought of my husband. I wrote the things that I said to him. And then on another sheet, I wrote what God would say of him, what God would say to him. And I took the sheet of mine and I went and I buried it. And I said, no more, but I couldn't do it. You know, you establish like a, a rapport of the way you do relationship with someone and it, and it becomes a habit. So we... Um, we continued, and a couple of, it wasn't long, it was just a, maybe a couple of weeks after that. We were in church, and they did a, an altar call for, 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 for sick people. They said people who wanted healing. And I'm not very good with those things. My timing's always out. If I feel I want to go, I'm already up there before I even hear what they're calling you for. So I was out my chair and I was there. And here I was standing with people who had cancer, you know, we were sick. And Pete said, What's, what is wrong? And I, was, I just said, my mind, my mind. I need my mind to be healed. And he touched me. And it's, a, it's the only time I've been slain in the spirit and I lay there. And I got up and I went home. And on the way home, I'd seen um, his church. We're having a conference, and I just knew I had to go. And I sat there, and um, I went on my own. I didn't know anybody. But you sit for three days just listening to the Word of God. You know, I could feel my mind being transformed. But the most amazing thing was the speaker there was Ziggy. And I don't know if any of you have listened to Ziggy or Blando. If you sit too close, you're going to get spat on. She's a German preacher who speaks with such conviction. You know, she, impregnation! You know, and the spray would. So here, you know, listening to this woman, strong woman, done incredible things. And at the, on the third day, they said it wasn't part of the program. But they felt that they needed to give her husband an opportunity to come and speak. And up got this man. Quiet. Gentle. Spoke of the love of God. The tears ran down his cheek. You know, and I just looked at that and here was a different model. Here was a model of a wife who knew what she wanted, where she was going, and a gentle husband who walked next to her. And I went home and I thought, it's okay. And God changed my language. Right there, I just, I, I never, I didn't speak the way I used to. I didn't think the way I used to. And it was different. But my husband had got retrenched and he'd, he'd come back and he'd, He'd said he, he'll take over the business, but he's got a partner. He didn't want to do it with me. So I thought, well, it's either my marriage or this. So I said, well, then I'm out. And I had a fabulous year with my kids. As young adults, I got to spend time with them spontaneously, and we built such a good relationship. But the partners left him, 
And it was back to him and I. Not too long after that, he, um, my daughter was in first year varsity. So he went to the shop. We only had one car. And I had to take her to the dentist. He went to the shop and he never came back. And I got this phone call to say, do you know this person? Because I had phoned and phoned on the cell phone because I needed to get my daughter. I needed the, the car back. And I just thought he was outside and not answering the cell phone. And I was trying to say to so this man was saying to me, lady, I'm not coping. You need to get here. And I said, where are you? But he couldn't give me the address. Just before that, I had said to George, you know, if you die, I'm in big trouble, big trouble. I needed to pay my, my brother back for the house. I said, if I die, you're okay, but if you die, I'm in big trouble. So I got quotes from, I just wouldn't let this go, but he had health issues. I got quotes from insurance companies. We couldn't afford the, the premium. But eventually I put him on my life policy and, and just enough to cover that amount that I owed. Well, while this man was on the phone, I was busy sending three pages, three pages that, that the company hadn't received of our acceptance letter and one George needed to sign. I was sending those pages to complete that transaction. And I had this man on the phone. Eventually, I gave the phone to my daughter to see if she could work out the address. Because I said to the man, I need to get someone to pick me up. I don't have a car. Could you just tell us the road name? And I gave the phone to my daughter, and I was trying to find an ambulance and hoping they would, she would be able to give me the address that I could get. And eventually, two young 14-year-old girls took the phone, and they said where he was. Now, he had said, my husband's sitting on the pavement. When we eventually got there, he was sitting in the back seat of the car. So the car had broken down. It pulled off on the side of the road, and he was in the back seat, and he had died. And these two young girls took my daughter, these little 14-year-olds, and said, don't go there. That's not your dad anymore. And don't worry George always hung a cross from his rearview mirror. We saw the cross. We stood with him. We prayed with him. These little kids, the father was, lady, I'm not coping. But these little kids. So that was um, another change in life. George had died. I thought there's no way this company are now going to pay out because... They hadn't even, the paperwork and his time of death were almost the same time. But they did. It wasn't a huge sum of money, but they did. I was able to sell the house, um, move. And you know, the other incredible thing was I'd never, like, I'd never sort of verbalized this in a prayer to the Lord, but I'd often just in my heart said, God, why no one? You took my dad. Life would have been so different if he'd lived. My brothers didn't step up. George with his struggles. Why? Why nobody? And I arrived at my gate. And here was a young 20-year-old boy. Earphones on. Sanding that gate. My house was full of men. They cleaned it up, they painted, they fixed it. Colin helped me with all my paperwork. Everything that happened on George's death was done by man. Everything. It was the most incredible experience. I knew God knew me. Because nobody else knew that but him. So I had to take the business back. I had to move house. I had to pick up the responsibility but I wasn't in the same position as my mom another thing oh God don't let me be like my mom I don't want to be bitter I don't want to be angry all the time my mom would sit in her wheelchair at 70 and the tears would stream if she spoke of her father 
She hated him. He used to hold her on the stove and switch it on. So I wasn't like her. She had no money. She had four kids under the age of 10. My youngest was at varsity. I moved. I did my exams. Took over the business again. And we went on. The kids were both in Cape Town. And then, because we'd lived in PE, I'd met Derek. They were family friends. So Beth was doing the normal Durban thing with friends down at St. Francis. And whenever I went past that, the coast, I always used to visit Derek. Derek's wife had died of throat cancer, a lovely couple. And we eventually got married. So this was George. One many, many, many young people to the Lord. Something I'm not very good at, but he was so good at that. These are my kids. I have a lovely relationship with them, and they're they lovely kids. My son is incredible. Mom, how are you doing? Mom, what are you doing this weekend? Just amazing how he treats me. When his daughter, when his sister got married, her husband's an ex-Stormers um, rugby player. So those guys also party. And... When he asked me could he marry my daughter, I, didn't, I, I hadn't really thought anything. I just said yes and, and was very excited. I didn't think. And afterwards I thought maybe I should have had some questions. And I asked my son because he'd taken my son out and, and he'd said to my son, can I marry your sister? And my kids were f- sort of youngish. You know, they were not at high school yet when their dad was drinking. But he said to me, mom, don't worry. He said, I said to Craig, Craig, do you, are you sure you want to marry, be married? Is that, is that what you want? Because he said, you can't have my sister and a life with your friends. They're not negotiable. It's my sister or the life with your friends. So you need to be sure because this is my sister. And Craig is very good to Beth. They have a wonderful marriage. I saw my language in her. And I said, Beth, don't make that mistake. You know, I could have justified why I felt like I did, but God doesn't care about why you do it. I used to say to God, if you are real, then I want my family to say, where did you see Christ? I saw him in my mother. I saw him in my wife. I said, you don't have to do this. So they went off and did a course. They did a course and she changed like that. They went to church. They did a, um, I, don't, I don't know exactly what it is, but they are so respectful. She's, she respects her husband. She's a career girl, but, but she, they speak so nicely. They, they are going to have a great marriage because that is my prayer. So Derek and I were eventually got married and we, our friends did a fabulous, fabulous wedding for us in Mtanzini. It was such fun. We, we, we got married. We went on a cruise on a boat. We arrived at the beach to get to, to have the ceremony. We got back on the boat. It was like an adventure. And he was a good man. He was so good to me. He reflected something of God's heart to me. He used to say things to me like, it's going to be okay. And he'd say, Colleen, you're not alone. I'd felt alone all the time. Those words were were just, meant so much to me. He would say to me, let me do the business. You go and have coffee with a friend. Go and enjoy life. And it, it was hard for me. It was hard to, to initially, you know, to, to trust. But eventually I would. But then he got really sick and um, ended up in hospital. Milan and her family came because he loved music. And they actually sang to him in hospital. 
But they said to me his organs were collapsing, so I took him home. And he was a good man. People came from Port Elizabeth, from East London, to come and say goodbye to him. His daughters came down. And we were able to read out of the Bible, to sing to him. It was like loving somebody into the hands and giving him to Jesus. You know, George's had been so sudden. It's like your last word is your last word. But Derek, we could hand him over. So there it was. He was gone. I was back on my own again, back picking up responsibilities, back doing the normal things that one does if you, you know, the breadwinner and you've got responsibilities to others. And then I started to pray to God and say, oh, Lord, 57, 50 is a good biblical number. Seven is a good biblical number. I'm tired. I want some form of change. And a guy approached me and said he was interested in buying my business a portion of it, but he wanted the name. And I cried. I said, God, I can't sell that name. You know, you gave me Jeremiah Brokers. That business was so good to us. When George got retrenched, when we went through everything, we were able to eke out an existence and keep going. I can't sell the name. And I heard God say to me, but that man came to give you a message. You named your business. The message was for you. And I was able to say to him, okay, let's do, you know, do the deal. And he's happy to take the staff. I'll keep a portion of my business, but he'll take the biggest, you know, the biggest portion in my name. So now it's time for new seasons, new things. I don't know what, what God has for me. I just know like this thing here. This is something I will always treasure and never get rid of. Because you know when you, when you carry something, when you carry a weight and you just keep doing it, you only realize the weight of what you're carrying when you put it down. I only realized the weight of what I was carrying when I lay my life down before the Lord. I felt like I have been set free, set free of so many things. So that's my doorstop and always will be. And for any of you who are brave enough, you can come pick it up. It reminds me of God's freedom, but it reminds me too to be careful what you do pick up because you'll put one thing down and you'll carry another thing. So that's one of my favorite possessions is this. The rest of the stuff, ugh. when I moved into my house, I had two deck chairs is to sit in the two deck chairs for a, for a long time, you know. It was fun. Eventually, your things come. In fact, my daughter, was, we were in an antique shop, and she said, you know, Mom, you can't believe that people used to just have that little wardrobe. But that was exactly it. My mom had two work dresses, two weekend things, her work shoes, her other shoes, and I had my little cupboard and... And now, now we can't. My son, I don't know when he gets married, I's ever going to share a wardrobe because that child has got clothes. So that's, that's my story. That's where I'm at. I'm excited for, for what God has. My prayers, my prayers of God make it stop. You know, I'd also asked him when, when George was getting retrenched and financially just because I couldn't I was really struggling to keep my mom and keep those you know the, the, our, our lives going and not long after that George died and initially I was like whoa because you think you know is that God's answer to this prayer and yes it was it was because it set me free Not as a punishment, but it, there was a there was a, a, f a freedom of of funding of pressure. Derek very good to me, and now I'm in a new season. I don't know how you know whether I'll stay here. My kids want me to come to Cape Town, 
They love having me around. That's another answer to prayer. Because I'll say to them, don't just invite me. You don't have to. Mom, we want to. We like you, Mom. I never liked my mom. They like me. They don't just love me. They like me. I don't have anything like my mom's life. Even that prayer as a little child. Please, Lord. I don't want to suffer like my mom. So in every respect, every respect, you know, the only value of looking back is you see how faithful God is. Your fears, all those fears that you had, you look back. I don't look back and think perhaps I should have divorced him. I'm glad I stayed. I'm so glad I stayed. But the benefit of looking back is I see God's faithfulness. And I think no matter what the future holds, that faithfulness is before me. I walk into that faithfulness. I don't have to be fearful. This country, this world makes one fearful. But I don't have to be fearful because I've seen what's behind me. So I hope that encourages each and every one of you because as unique as we are are the plans for our lives, that secret place that God knows, he touches for each and every one of us. So I pray that for you, that you too would see God's faithfulness in your life and know that that is what you walk into. So thanks for listening. Father, we just give you thanks, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your grace, Lord, for your mercy. Father, for your patience, for your love for us, Lord Jesus, for your knowledge of us, Lord. Father, that we get not only to discover you, but we get to discover ourselves as we walk with you, Lord Jesus. We get to discover that, what you've put in us, Lord. And we thank you for that, Lord Jesus. I pray for every person here, Lord. I pray for their relationships, Lord Jesus, for marriages, Lord Jesus. Father, that you would be there in every, every area, Lord, emotionally, mentally, physically, your provision, Lord Jesus. We thank you for family, Lord. We thank you for, for church family, Lord Jesus. And I thank you, God, that you are faithful and true. Praise you. Amen.